I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. Adolescents with substance use disorder, gaining a great deal of attention these days. With a focus on prevention, we're speaking today with author and educator, Linda Reese. Linda has spent over 40 years as an educator, working as a media specialist, teaching language arts on elementary middle school levels. She's a certified master's addiction counselor who has worked with adolescents and adults in recovery. And Linda has a special focus on addiction awareness through the use of literature coupled with counseling. Linda, welcome. Thank you. You authored the book entitled The Adventures of Maddie Morphis. It's about a caterpillar who imparts a very specific take-home message. Being a media specialist in the field for many years, I had the opportunity of working with a lot of students. And also, I did a lot of focus on addiction awareness. I taught distance learning programs, elementary and middle school children. I created this whole program on addiction and prevention. And then I got the idea to write the book because working with children in kindergarten through eighth grade, really nothing out there for those types of students that age level. And I created this little character called Maddie Morphis, who never really transformed into a butterfly until she plummeted into the ozone layer of the earth. So the book is also focused on some vocabulary words. Anyone could really read it. It's not just uh, for younger kids or it could be for adults as well. The book focused on stranger danger. One of the things that happens with kids when they're younger, sometimes they're approached by kids that are selling or dealing drugs on the street and they are caught off guard. So the focus in my book was also on stranger danger. I gave some strategies in the book, what to do if a stranger approaches you. It's about a young kid that approaches these little kids in kindergarten, first grade, encourage them to do drugs. And then all of a sudden, there comes Maddie Morphis, who crawled to the park and transforms into a butterfly. He creates a change in this, the boy that was approaching the drugs and giving it to these kids. Everything just changes. It's all about awareness and education. The character has a lot of shoes on. I was trying to put sneakers on so that the character would relate to elementary students. So the title, Maddie Morphis, I assume that comes from metamorphosis. Yes, it's a play on words, exactly. Obviously, the concept is preventative. We've had a number of discussions with people about prevention. There's good and there's bad prevention. What is it that you would say puts your book in the good prevention category? First of all, I find that the illustrations are very colorful and catchy. Students in the illustration, the ones that Peter could really relate and identify to the students, what they're wearing, their facial expressions, their hair. I think that the characters in my book are very believable. Someone young could really relate to it. And also the student that's approaching the drugs is wearing a black shirt with skull and crossbones on it, which is very prevalent out there now with these young kids. Some of them think that's good. That might be a little mixed message in there. But the key really is literature. I believe, being a media specialist, that there are many other books out there about this, this topic. I think that it's very important for students to really begin at a young age to really be exposed to literature of this subject matter. Remember the program D.A.R.E. in the elementary schools and the resource officer ran it? It used to say, just say no, N-O, to drugs. 
But I used to say, just say K-N-O-W to drugs because knowledge is power. So just saying no is not experiential. That was why I also wrote the book. How young are you looking at first and second graders? Because there's a world of difference in just the experience and the emotional maturity between a first grader and a sixth grader. It's a massive multi-layered project to try to keep people from drifting into substance abuse. What age group is your book aimed at? The book is K through eight. You realize that there are many students on different levels in elementary and middle school. The book is really a general concept. I presented this at many different schools. I presented it at of all ages. Many students don't relate to it and they don't want to be aware of it. But for the most part, somebody will always pick out something in the book they can identify with. For example, the ozone layer of the earth. This caterpillar is plummeted into the ozone layer of the earth. So it's like middle school curriculum as well. It's scientifically based with vocabulary words, scientific concepts of metamorphosis, of the butterfly emerging. Although it's a very general book, it still has a lot of concepts in it. As a society, why are we having such a hard time? What are we missing, if anything? My opinion on the whole thing is most of it is predisposition. Most of drug addiction is an inherited gene. These people come from a long line of addiction. Their family of origin were either alcoholics, drug addicts, food addicts, you know, there's domestic abuse. So the behavioral aspect when the student is young, if they're exposed to the, their parents or their siblings or generational, that sometimes they're born with it. Sometimes it's just behavioral or environmental. But the key really is right now what I'm discovering is parental education as well. When I was in the school, in the media center, we did a lot of workshops with the parents on the dangers of taking drugs. The other biggest problem that's happening is the siblings. The siblings in the family and the parents. The parents are very laissez-faire and enabling sometimes in the home. I let my, my kids smoke pot with me because I'd rather they smoke it in the house rather than the streets. However, if a kid has an addictive personality, if you have a predisposition to drugs in your family of origin, and you start with marijuana, that's going to really be a trigger for you. And you might, you know, get into other hard drugs later on. So that's what I think. And then also the other factor is the siblings, the parents are all working. It's a different society. It's not like when we were growing up and the parents were home and they monitored and they were home for lunch and students are really on their own a lot. And if they have older siblings in the household, sometimes they get into the prescription drugs in the medicine chest and they turn their kids onto it. Also spray bottles, aerosols. The other day I went into a store and I bought a spray for an art project and I had to be asked that they came over to me and they wondered how old I was. They were kidding around. But you know, you have to get carded now if you're buying aerosols because the kids are getting high on it. Well, that's a very big factor now. The siblings, the the enabling in the in the home on the streets too. The kids can get these drugs on the streets. The traditional organizations, the first of which, of course, is the family, then the schools, then the churches, if that's a part of a person's life, the general political environment and attitude towards substances. Do you find that we are failing in teaching kids to have social skills and strengths 
to be able to look at, like in your book, the opportunity to use a drug which may look like it's comfortable and fun and relaxing and take away social phobias or whatever. We're not doing enough to teach kids to be a bit more resilient. You've got boots on the ground in the real world. Most of us look at you, but we don't do it. My thoughts are that when I was in the school system, they are failing these students because of all the paperwork. For example, if there is a kid that has emotional problems or behavioral problems, it takes months before this student gets service. Children that have different problems, there's a lot of autism, there's a lot of mental illness, and many times these turn to substance abuse. I believe very strongly in early intervention. I think they do a really good job on elementary school level. The elementary school, in my opinion, when I was in the elementary for 17 years, phenomenal. They made sure that they targeted these students with problems. They did all this early intervention. And then once they got to middle school, it falls apart. The middle school cannot handle these kids because they don't have the services for it or the funding. It seems to me that younger children in the elementary level easy to teach them these values and they're gung-ho and they understand. I've seen that. I participated with American Cancer Society years ago where they did a smoke-free class of 2000. And the kids in the elementary level were gung-ho with these projects and they believed in this stuff. But then something happens when they become adolescents and everything starts falling apart. What's the role of books like this? How are they valuable when they're looking like they're making such a difference with the younger kids, but so much of that breaks down when they get seventh, eighth grade? Okay, my book is targeted for K through eight, but when it comes to the middle school kids, they might not relate totally, but I try to create it for maybe a student that might have a special needs or students that are not that fully maturation. So the other thing, when the kids get to middle school, there's another very important factor. They're changing hormonally. Kids are maturing more quickly. Girls are developing at a younger age. Boys are developing earlier as well. Kids that maybe 12 or 13 look like they're fully developed. As these kids evolve into adolescence, how do we keep them on track? For example, they took the media programs away in middle school. So they don't even have programming in there. It's basically just to check books in and out. So my opinion is to create some other programs. First, again, parental education, awareness for parents to know different factors of what's going on. And then to really seek out other literature, shared with you that I did a lot of research on some articles that I was reading. There is literature out there that's higher level than my book, that if they start utilizing some of those books in the classroom using bibliotherapy, it's very important that they read different books. Not just books focused on drug awareness, there are many other books on other addictions. Some of the books are biographies of movie stars, that have been drug addicts and how they've transformed themselves. A lot of people go into 12-step programs and there's a tremendous amount of literature in that area. Now, when I taught dropout prevention in fifth grade, I took the 12 steps of the 12-step recovery program and I rewrote it and I called it the Succeed Program. So I called it the powerlessness over my study habits. And then I took them through the steps of different strategies, how to study with more effectiveness. That was experiential. Creating more programs in the middle schools so that the kids get more of a foundation about drugs, the dangers of drugs, 
and then the preventative measures to just say that they know now. We all compete with this, in particular marijuana, sense that it's benign. It's okay. It's not such a big deal. And I know from a clinical perspective, sometimes it is not a big deal. I, we, I would be misleading to say that everybody who uses marijuana gets into trouble. No, we know that. But enough do get into trouble that we want to find the trigger points. Is it that the schools have lost being the monitor, the safe place? The families have lost their role or clergy or whatever it is in the person's life. One of the things that I will never, ever, ever forget is that when I would ask different people, why did your friend get in trouble with drugs and you didn't? And I'm simplifying a bit. And the person who did not get in trouble said, oh, my grandma, my grandma was in my life. You don't understand. Oh, no, I could never do anything to embarrass my grandma. And that's so powerful. And it's so the schools have a role. You bring up a topic that's so big. Complex. However, again, there are certain kids that are born into families that have addictive predisposition. These are the types of kids that really don't have a fighting chance. They say, because my brother died from an overdose, I won't touch drugs. But then they develop other addictive tendencies. They might have food addiction. They might have gambling or another addiction. You can't get away. If you are from a family that has an addictive tendency, a family of origin, it will manifest itself in some way. I do believe that the schools, as you, we were talking about today, it's no longer the role of the school. They cannot help these kids. It's got to be from the family unit. Yes, the marijuana. There is going to be a lot of peer pressure with that as well. And these kids can get it so much more readily than they could in the old days. And you could always get it, but now it's all over the place. You have all this legal marijuana and you have the stuff with the THC in it. All these gummy bears you have a lot of people that are on gummies as well. The world, it's more laissez-faire with drugs today. Kind of the kids get permission. I could do this when my mother is taking gummy bears, so I could try one too. Kids model themselves after their parents. Maybe you should write a book, the equivalent of what you've done, but now to help parents look at themselves and how they deal with their children. One of the things about the addiction issue, I concur with you, and it's not a formal addiction per se, though I think we should produce a label. I call it a self-image addiction. And how do you see yourself? I'm not pretty. I'm stupid. I'm not successful. I'm not sexy enough. My body didn't develop the way I wanted it. That is a psychological challenge, which is huge. And if someone is using drugs, quite often, those become issues so much in the immediate interacting with other people. In the long run, it can cause tremendous problems. We do tend to forget, and I, and I applaud you for bringing this up, there are many addictions that are not just drugs. Yes. And forget that. But you're talking about low self-esteem. And a lot of times, it's a lot to do with social media as well. Facebook, what's going on right now with the drugs, with the weight loss? Now you get these drugs right away. You could just take a drug and lose 60 pounds. You referenced bibliotherapy. Yes. Could you define that for us? What what, what exactly is bibliotherapy? Okay. I've always used bibliotherapy with all of my clients and with my students. It's the use of literature to create knowledge, to create awareness of different subject matters. I use a lot of books that have like a lot of thoughts, meditations in them. In the 12-step program, they have all of these daily readers. When I work with a client, sometimes I'll take the general concept, focus on staying in the present moment, 
working on feeling good about yourself, positive affirmations, pausing instead of reaction. The books give you a way, like a design for your day, to stay in the present, to not project or go back. Work on being the person that you were meant to be. The self-esteem building. I make a lot of suggestions. I refer them to various literature. Do the schools endorse or applaud your bibliotherapy and strategies? When I was teaching distance learning in the middle school, I was teaching a multiple amount of schools. I chose a lot of that focused on various problems like dyslexia, self-esteem, on study skills, and I created a whole program around it. I had like 20 books, and every week I would read the book to this class, and then we would talk about the issues in the book, and then they would relate and identify and they would share where they were coming from their own experiences. I did a whole book on eating disorder. You had anorexics, you had Karen Carpenter. The bibliotherapy certainly seems like a positive, a progressive approach. Is there research to show that this actually makes a difference, between, particularly in the area of the drug addiction? Yes, there were quite a few articles that do back up the use of literature to help people grow the whole thing is awareness, not on the outside of you, but what's going on inside of you. And definitely making a shift in the way that you can view your life. Unfortunately, sometimes the only thing that moves someone is hitting a bottom. One of the things that I'm very pleased to hear is the notion of self-image. But you do bring up the problem of predisposition. This has always been a conundrum in terms of psychiatry and coming to a diagnosis. Some people shall we say, are a little too fundamentalistic. It's either all self-image or it's medicinal, and they need medication-assisted treatment. And it's confusing. It, it, it really is at times. There is definitely a role for suboxone and methadone and naltrexone and whatever. But I think what's happened, it's become almost too easy to blame it on that and skip the hard stuff, like fixing your family, fixing your self-image. When people say, oh, man, all I need is Suboxone and I'll be okay. It's not the case. I'm basically expressing my frustrations. And you're working in the developing brain much more than we are. We're usually after the fact. Your frustrations, your, your, your aggravations, your hesitancies. I, I'm just fascinated. I want to hear just more about your opinions about all this stuff because I think there's a lot to learn from your experiences. I'll tell you the truth. You know, the people that I work with right now, many of them are on medication. Some of them are resistant. They don't want to take it because after they take it for a while, they say, I feel better or I feel weird. They don't want to take it. So what I focus on a lot in my therapy session is the chemistry imbalance that you're born with. Any disease that you would have, like DIS, D-I-S-E-A-S-E. When you need to take medication for anxiety or depression, you're taking it not only because it makes you feel better, it will balance out your chemistry. There's a stigma of taking drugs to get better mentally. We had to have a whole session about that. My role as a therapist is to just really listen and to support, to give some suggestions. However, they really have to do their own work, and they do. And a lot of talking to them, where are you? This is not about me as a therapist. This is their own experience and growth. The whole thing is very experiential. You can read about it and you can talk about it. person has to experience it before they will really be ready to make a change. When someone picks up your book, 
or any book of similar genre. Is it a good idea for the parent to be the facilitator, or is it more designed to be done and under the auspices of a teacher in school? Both. Younger kid, parent may want to read it to the, to the kid. And I think in school, so I have, you know, like a little bit of an animation, and I presented it as a slideshow. Then you have a question and answer period. So you ask the students various questions, talk about their own experiences, the younger ones. When you get to the middle school, but again, it may not be, or they may not, you know, even want to read it or relate to it. But if I present it as a teacher, I may be able to find the target key points in my book to maybe bring it around to how an eighth grader might relate to it. That's how I would do it as a teacher. So in terms of sending a message to young people, question always comes up, do we have an ethical obligation to plant these ideas in their heads that using these drugs are a bad thing and you're a bad person if you do this, et cetera, et cetera, with, uh, with the possibility, particularly as they go into adolescence, that, oh, you adults are always just trying to take away the good stuff. We're not going to listen to you. You're old-fashioned. What do you know? Put it into like an ethical context. Who are we to tell them what they should be doing. I definitely agree that parents need to continue giving them that message, but also to let the little ones know when I do my presentation that this is not when you get sick and you go to the doctor and the doctor prescribes medicine for you. This is another kind of drug that is not a prescription drug. You go to the doctor, that's okay to do it. What you're asking me is that if a kid's going to take drugs, they're going to experiment with drugs, no matter how much you educate them, they will still go out and do drugs. There's a lot of things out there, but if a child is an adolescent, young kid, whatever, is predisposed to taking drugs, no matter what we do, unfortunately, they're going to go out and explore. So do you think there needs to be some type of a screening process for those individuals who have these predispositions so we can pay particular attention to those kids. That would be a great thing to really work on. When I work with clients, I do questions in their intake, a whole questionnaire. Did your grandparents have any addiction? Did your parents have it? You go back in the family line. That might be a great idea when parents register their students, have some kind of an extra form, give more information about the history. Should that be done in the school environment? I don't think that they would politically let that happen. It sounds like it's something you... I would like to, but I don't know if that's going to happen. But there could be something in the intake on the medical form. There could be some questions regarding substance abuse in the family line. You could teach a thousand students. You don't know that 500 said, oh, remember that lady we had? She said this. Oh, that's happening. And all of a sudden, they had the ego strength to say no or to at least think about it. We do know when we do, do studies how many people end up in a hospital. That's measurable. But the preventative stuff is not always measurable. And that makes it difficult to get funding for your programs. So, lady, how many kids did you stop using drugs? You can't say. There's no data on that. 
you know, when I taught that fifth grade class of dropout prevention and I did the 12 steps with study skills, sometimes I run into my students when they're already old and married and have children. And I went into the store and one of them was the manager in there. And he said, Mrs. Reese, thank you so much because you have helped me so much in my life since fifth grade. You were my favorite teacher. That was worth like a million bucks to me. You know what I mean? That's all I really want. So, yeah. And I'm hoping, you know, as I said today, you know, I have to always do these assessments with my clients to know how are we doing? Do you feel like you're making progress? What do you think we're missing here? What are your goals? Are you reaching your goals? Are you clean? Are you abstaining? Are you, we talk about that. We talk about their slips once in a while. They have a slip. I think that's excellent. And that's the type of stuff that's, like you say, deeply satisfying in ways that words can't capture. But to go to a political issue, your exposure, your experience, your interpretation of the political policymakers in terms of preventative programs for substance abuse, where are we? They do have some preventative programs out there, but not enough, not enough. Because unfortunately in the school system, and they've cut a lot of programs that are really very important. They had DARE, but then they also had another program put into place, but then they cut that program too. So they're not prioritizing on what's really important. It's penny wise and dollar foolish. Right, right. right. So I think they are failing. Religion has a lot to do with this too, because everyone has different religious beliefs. And some people feel that they don't want their kids to be that, get these types of programs in education because you know they're very strict religiously and they feel it's against their religious belief system. So that's another factor too. You could be brought up on charges if you say the wrong thing, you present material. Look what's going on with the banning of the books right now. So there's a lot of upheaval going on here. So it's not just with these types of programs. They're banning all different other types of programs. And the parents have a lot to say, but so do the political, the school boards, you know, with, with the school boards as well. So we don't really have that much power, you know, or choice. But the teachers can use books and they can teach their students different strategies to say no or to prevent using drugs. And looking towards the future, are you hopeful? Yes, because you ever hear the acronym for hope? Hold on, pain ends. Oh, I like that. And there are no failures, only delayed successes. So even if these kids get into some trouble, when they get more mature and they really get more sane, these kids on the streets that are doing this is insanity. They're doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same negative results. So maybe when they get a little older, I've seen a lot of them, and they do make better choices. They do. And then you have some of these people that never make changes. And unfortunately, you know what happens. It's either a homicide or suicide. Like if they kill themselves, that's really suicide. But if they get the drugs off the street that are illegal and they don't realize what they're taking then they consider that a homicide. Linda Reese is educator, addiction counselor, and author of the children's book, The Adventures of Maddie Morphis. Linda, thanks for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Very interesting.